All right. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful for the love of others, and we are grateful for friends and fellowship and just caring for one another. And, and it is fun to be surprised in, in good ways. And um, we come together, as we do here every Tuesday, as friends, living this life together in fellowship, to spend time in your word, in the pages of scripture. And we pray as we do every time that your spirit who dwells in us all will fill us with energy and enthusiasm and understanding and bring to mind the questions we have that might only come to mind after we all leave here. So, so bring those to our minds now while we are together and we can, we can talk about it. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Corinthians 15, so we are talking about the resurrection. And we are talking, we'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but more importantly for the Corinthians, the resurrection of the dead. Everything's on. Yep, so they should be getting audio, and they should, you should be able to see the video online. I can look at the wall over here. Yeah, I think it's all on. Okay, so why don't we turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. And we sort of began to get in that a little bit last week. Um, Maybe I should start today by defining resur what resurrection is and isn't. Okay, so the Greek word is anastasis. That's the word resurrection. And it is a word that the Greeks had. Um, it was something that they could imagine that someone came back bodily in the flesh. Okay, so if you were Greek and you were walking down a beach and you ran into Achilles, um, if he were resurrected, you would run into Achilles in the flesh. And you could go up and, I don't know, what would you do? If he was Brad Pitt, like in the movie Troy, you would hug him or something, right? So sure, I get that. But the Greeks knew that didn't happen. If you ran into Achilles on the beach, you would be run into Achilles' ghost, or his shade, as the Greek, Greeks called it. it was. But resurrection, they could imagine, just didn't think it happened. And so that word is anastasy. So that is the word that the Jews and the Christians used to describe what God would do at the last times, which is to resurrect the dead. Okay? Why don't you turn, in fact, to, to Daniel 12.3 and just see a fairly late little piece of Scripture. Because Daniel's written maybe 160 years or so um, before Jesus. Daniel 12, verse 3. I say using my memory. And, and this is one little piece that fed the growing Jewish belief. 
Daniel 12.3, the growing Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. It's just a slight signpost. It's not going to blow your, blow your socks off or anything. I'm going to start at verse 2, because that's really where I should have sent you. But anyway, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, meaning those who are dead. Sleeping is a uh, uh, nice way of saying dead. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That is kind of pretty revelationish, actually. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. So that is one little signpost in the pages of Scripture. But if you looked at other Jewish writings from the time, you can see emerging this belief that at the end of time that God would bodily resurrect the Jews so that they could inhabit the new heavens and the new earth described in Isaiah 65. And that generally was known as the resurrection of the dead. So it, it wasn't a, a doctrine invented by the Christians, right? Because the early Christians were all Jews. Paul, the rest of them, they were all Jews. But it was something that the um, Christians, as that these Jews who embraced Jesus as Messiah understood um, was preserved in the hope and promise of what, of what God would do. But the Corinthians don't really believe that, okay? Because they're Greeks. They know what? They, they know what everybody pretty much knows, which are that dead people stay dead. Dead people stay dead. So now go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read in again. Okay, then let's do this. I'm on your iPad, but not your yes. phone. I will turn off the streaming and turn the streaming back on. How about that? Other than that, that's all I could do. It makes no sense that it would be... Okay. Now I've turned the streaming off. Now I'm going to start the streaming again. Two Scots. It should be working. It makes no s Can you think of a reason it would be on an iPad and, and not an iPhone? No. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that would be. Unless she's screen mirroring like you are. That could be. No, she's watching it on a Facebook feed on the iPad. Well, they'll have to listen to the podcast later or something because I have no idea. That is so weird. Just talk amongst yourselves for not... Yeah, there it is. 
phone, phones. Okay. Hello, streamers. We're back on, and we are at first at First Corinthians 15, verse one. You've hardly missed a darn thing, except a huge birthday party for me. Okay. So, to the Corinthians, Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Right? This, this is the word. <laughs> no, no, I can't turn it off. Yeah. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, Paul came to them, brought them the good news of Jesus Christ, they put their faith in Jesus, they believed what Paul had brought to them, and thus that is their path to salvation, unless they turn away from it all, which is what he fears ha is happening with the Corinthians. Verse 3, for he says, for what I received, we talked about this last week, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. More important than anything else. What he received, where did he receive it? Well, in Acts and Galatians, we, are, we learn that Paul spent time in Jerusalem about three years or so, two years maybe, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And that is probably where he got this next piece that, that seems very much like a creed. Easy to memorize, straightforward, short, pithy pieces about the resurrection of Jesus. Because um, it, it even begins a little bit like, right, like, like an Apostles' Creed or a part of the Apostles' Creed or something like that. So here's what he received that is of first importance. And now he's passing on or reminding the Corinthians of that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What he means is that all of this, if you really read the Hebrew Bible well, you would be able to understand Jesus and what happened to Jesus and what it means. It's all in keeping with the law and the prophets, as, as it's sometimes put. It's the same thing Jesus tells to Nicodemus, that if you really understood Nicodemus, this is in John 3, you would understand. If you really knew the scriptures the way you should know them, you would understand. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning died. Because it is only maybe 23 years, 24 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, of these five hundred men and women that Jesus appeared to, um, that saw him, would most be alive? Certainly many would be. I mean, they're, you know, like I said last week, once you make it to the age of five, <laughs> you've gotten a long way toward living past the age of 40 in this world. The um, life expectancy was dragged down by infant mortality. 
verse 6. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, who did not follow Jesus during Jesus' life. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born because he missed the whole thing back then. He did meet Jesus on the road to Damascus, but of course he wishes that he had been able to walk with Jesus. Um, he, Jesus came late to him. Verse 9. This is about where we were last week. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God. True statement. Book of Acts. He, remember, Paul was Saul who was going around persecuting the Christians. He was like a beast, like a monster, tearing through this early, these early Christian communities just in the year, one year, two years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's not going to Damascus for a vacation. He's going up there to round up Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. That's when he meets Jesus. And it isn't hard to imagine the guilt that he would always carry with him, the knowledge that he had been a persecutor of the very church that God had now told him to lead and to create and to grow. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. Big, big sentence really because there's lots of things that we end up thinking are beyond the reach of God's grace. And the truth is, nothing is. Nobody is. The people you hear about in life, and you maybe meet in life, who do the very worst things that you could ever imagine, even they are not beyond God's grace. We, aren't one, we should never see ourselves as people who are deciding the limits and boundaries of God's grace. I came to realize that for myself, the way that became sort of real was the issue of could somebody come to faith in Jesus after they died? Um, and I realized that I think I and many Christians were put seeing death as a boundary that God's grace couldn't cross. And I came to understand that I'd need to find a basis in Scripture about that. And I never have. God's grace is expansive. Just, just let it be big and expansive. Be scandalized by it, sure. I can't believe God reported His grace on so-and-so. Be scandalized, fine. But for Paul, there's no bigger scandal than this, that he was the persecutor of God's own people, and yet God reached to him and poured out his grace on Paul, and Jesus himself came to him on the road to Damascus. And he says, yeah, God's grace to me was not without effect. In other words, yeah, 
<laughs> I am a different man, and I have worked tirelessly, tirelessly, and suffered greatly for this. No, I worked harder than all of them, he writes. <laughs> Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It's almost like he has to catch himself. Because you see, I think Paul's an A, type A person. Type A plus plus plus. <laughs> very energetic, very zealous, very um, always working with strong purpose and it's easy I think for that kind of person to see it have, having been all from themselves and so I, I, I kind of think this is part of him that says I worked harder than them all Okay, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. I'd like to think he like catches himself, just because I think we should all, we all probably have to catch ourselves sometimes and realize what God and God's grace is doing in our lives. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. This is coming, so bless yourselves. This is what we preach and this is what you believed. Past tense. Paul has been there. He's founded the church. He isn't urging them to, to embrace something they had never heard. He's saying, you know this. I came to you. I taught you this. It's the same. I came to you. It's the same thing the apostles are teaching in their work. The other ones. Peter in Jerusalem or... Andrew, wherever, and you know, I taught you this. You believed, you've, you had faith in this. And then he drops the hammer about what he is being told. Verse 12, but it is preached, but if it is preached that Christ has not, ha, has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? All right. So he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, as Paul does, and the other apostles do, verses, you know, verse 11 above, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there you go. The Corinthian Christians are denying the resurrection of the dead. What is the resurrection of the dead? The belief that when Jesus returns, the dead would all be bodily resurrected. And as we've talked about, the Corinthians have a very spiritualized sense of what it means to be Christian, on top of which they know that dead people stay dead. And they have an acquaintance with shades and ghosts and all the kind of thing we do too with Casper and whatever. So, so this idea is freaky that you might lay in the, as dust in the ground for a thousand years and then God would raise you up to a newly embodied life, a life after, life after death. And the Corinthians are drifting away and they're, they're not believing in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's point is, you can't claim to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and yet, and deny the resurrection of the dead because they are completely bound up together. As you will see, that's what he's going to do is 
put these two things completely together. One action at two begun and ended at two different points in time, but one event, as it were. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Don. Well, cremation is, um, I'm going to be cremated, yes, and the ashes are spread. See, think about it, I, actually, I have different ways to answer that. Think about today, in 2022, the state of Paul's body. It, it's soil. I mean, he's died somewhere, you, have, you know, there's story, legends, so he's, he's turned into soil. So, in the beginning, in Genesis, God created the world out of nothing. So, does God have the power then to reconstitute Paul? Or do we need to help him, help God along in that? I don't think we need to help God along. God has the power to reconstitute Paul or me. I'm going to be cremated. Some Christians are not comfortable with that. Fine. But... God doesn't need our help. And after the passage of enough time, <laughs> whatever help we thought we were going to provide by providing some sort of skeleton inside a casket, well, it's not going to be there anyway, right? Because so, Jesus might not come back for 10,000 more years. Who knows? So that's it. Otherwise, you know what happens, Don, is that if you begin to think that God can't cope with cremation, you have a lot of Christians who were vaporized in the World Trade Center. Are they just like, oh well, too bad, so sad? No, God's power is immense. Don't, don't think that we have to figure out how God does this. Just go back to Genesis 1 and realize that God is the creator and the author of all life. And cremated or not, vaporized or not, buried in a casket or not, um, embalmed or not, whatever it might be, God can cope with it all. Why are what? I'm, I still can't hear it. Why are some people not comfortable with cremation? Just out of their own traditions, I think. Really, that's where some of it comes from? You'd have to ask them. I don't know. Um, I certainly am. Obviously, we are generally St. Andrews because we have a whole columbarium, right? So, but, you know, it's one of those things like if I meet somebody who says, oh, no, 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 I, I'm not going to be cremated. I'm going to be put in the ground. I'm saying, okay, well, that's, that's great. My grandpa, you know, he's in the ground. I don't know what kind of state he's in now, but, yeah, he's in the ground. So it's not anything to be divided over. It's just to respect different feelings and perspectives, and um, we're all we're all in the body of Christ. Lauren, and use your microphone there, please. Aha. Uh -huh. Hello. Hello. <laughs> okay, I was thinking about Ezekiel thirty-seven, the Valley of Dry Bones, and what. I'm starting to think, sing it to myself. Oh. The ankle bone's connected to the, yeah, whatever. Go ahead. But I'm sorry. In I'm in a party mood. 37, 1 through 14, it's the part where he's talking about the prophesying to the bones. Like, 
tendon to tendon, bone to bone. He, God will create flesh over them and breathe life into them. And it reminded me of what you just said about the beginning, like in Genesis. If God can creatio ex nihilo, create out of nothing, and then we have prophesies, and it says in verse 13, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. See, it's another one of those signposts too, that comes to be seen not merely as the restoration of the tribe of Israel, tribes of Israel, but God actually resurrecting people, putting bone upon bone. It's kind of like go way back to the book of Job, which is perhaps the oldest piece of writing in the Old Testament. Job is ancient, 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 ancient. Job isn't even a Jew. He's just from the land of us, wherever us is, right? He's from the land of us. And he says, I know I shall see my Redeemer in the flesh. In the book of Maccabees, old man Maccabee is being martyred and he, he, he knows that one day he is going to be resurrected. Now it's not for the best of reasons. He's going to be resurrected so he can pick up a sword and slay his, you know, tormentors. But still, it's this growing belief in resurrection. And it is thought that the reason that the Jews buried people as they did in Jesus' day was because it was like, like a statement about their confidence in the resurrection of the dead. Because as most of you have probably heard me teach, they did not just simply dig a hole and bury people in a hole. Instead, the bodies were wrapped up and so forth and laid out in a cave or in a tomb and a stone was rolled to keep animals out and when the body had completely, all the flesh had decomposed off the body and all that's left with the bones, they would come back in and collect the bones and put them in a bone box or an ossuary is the um, fancy name for it. And then they would store these bone boxes and there are photographs that you can find on the web of these bone boxes, sort of warehoused and little parts of these caves and tombs and so forth, one stacked upon the other with a scratched name at the end of the bone box. You know, this is, this is Aunt Celia and this is Uncle Bert and whatever. Okay, so that is what the Corinthians, you see, Paul understands that if they lose, they, if they lose their confidence in the resurrection of the dead, they're gonna lose everything. Because if you lose your confidence in the resurrection of the dead, which translates for you and me into our own resurrection, you are going to lose confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. You'll end up making the whole big thing into one big spiritualized metaphor. You know, and that is not what the words mean. You'll see it's not what Paul is talking about at all. And, um, and obviously by the length of this chapter, you know how essential Paul sees it. What did he say above? It's a first, I'm passing on to you what I received as a first importance. And Paul is right. If Jesus, if Jesus was not resurrected, we have all wasted our time. I mean, I love you guys, the party's great. But we could just come here and have the party and skip the rest of it. If Jesus wasn't actually resurrected. The resurrection is the proof that there's Jesus is not simply a really good man who had some good things to say that everybody would ignore. Okay? A real question. 
Okay, so now I'm going to ask what age we come back. What age would you like to come back as? Mid-30s. Mid-30s? That sounds good to me. I mean, I like to imagine mid-30s, good head of hair, a six-pack. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's funny. We joke about this, but I always, honestly, I just tell people, just pack it with as much goodness as you can, right? Because it, there's no... There's, there's nothing but goodness in it. So pack it with as much goodness as you can. Think about the people in your own life that you have lost that you would like to hug again. Not simply sit on a cloud beside and seeing him, but that you would like to hug them again. I would like to hug my mom. I would like to hug my granddad again. I'd like to sit down with my granddad and watch a baseball game with him. He loved baseball. And there will be baseball in heaven if anybody, you know, is wondering. It's been written about many times by many Christians that baseball is certainly God's game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Never heard that before. I would take that as a piece of little Catholic legend or Catholic arcana or something. Never, never heard. I don't know why that would be. Jesus' life was cut short, which was not a good thing, right? Jesus, Jesus was murdered at the age of 33. That's too young. That's too young. So, um, no, I have never heard that before. So let's go back to 1512, because we are in the heart of some... This is, this is getting down to it. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, right? How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's the link he makes. That's the key link he makes. He turns the two things into one event. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Why? Because Paul would have been preaching a lie. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Notice how, I mean, Paul is just, you know, we have the, what a phrase do we have? Beating a dead horse, mm -hmm. right? He's really whacking on that horse at this point, repeating himself over and over. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And that is the great sadness, right? So what's Paul's connection to? How does he connect these things together? If Christ was not raised, then it's all a lie. And our faith is futile. And we're still dead in our sins. And this is all there is. This is all there is. 
and there is no there is no way out of the darkness you know this is the failure that so many people come to who who want to see Jesus as merely a great teacher or a prophet or something because we have many we, we've had in human history many great teachers um, Confucius the Buddha the, the Buddha um, we have the law of Moses which if you really get into the ethical system it's just beautiful in so many ways in so many places the problem is we don't do it we won't do it our problem is not ignorance if you reduce Jesus to a teacher we, we are left with the problem. We could read the Sermon on the Mount every hour for our entire lives and we won't do it. We have enough human history now to know the truth of that. There is something wrong with us. There's a darkness in our hearts. It's why G.K. Chesterton famously said that original sin, this idea that there's something wrong in us that we can't fix, is the only Christian doctrine to have been empirically proven. By which he meant just open your eyes, look around, look at human history, look at your own life, and you can see the truth of that. We all know. So I reduce it, of course I do, to discussions of losing weight. I could go down to Barnes & Noble. Is Barnes & Noble still open over there? Yes. Okay. Um, and I could go in there and I could find shelves full of self-help books, losing weight books. Is my problem ignorance? Do I not know what I should do? I know what I should do. I just don't want to do it. Right, there we go. I mean, you could apply that in countless facets of your life. I'm so amused with the papers and things. I read them and they all have these little articles and all these little things. Do these ten things. Do these eight things. Do these seven things. Make New Year's resolutions and the rest. And the pe people are just as messed up as always. You know in America today you would think because we have cell phones and we have iPads and we have 70-inch televisions with high def that we would be vastly happier than our parents were in life. But we're not. Indeed, if you take the same measurements of happiness, the same measurement instruments of happiness, we are less happy than our parents were. We are driving ourselves crazy. That was sort of part of Arthur's sermon on Sunday, right? So. See, so when Paul says we are still dead in our sins, it's such a sad moment. And the sad part for me is that so much of the world doesn't know this. So much of the world that I now live in does not want to admit that there's a darkness in the human heart that we can't fix. There are too many people that have deluded themselves and thinking that they, they can just find the right formula, the right program, the right therapy, the right this, right that. They can fix all that. No, we can't fix it. We need a rescuer, we need a savior. But if Jesus was not resurrected, which would be the case if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we're still dead in our sins. And all that we can do is not go gently into that good night, as somebody famously put it. But you see, Look at verse 19, verse 18. 
Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those that have preceded us in death, they're lost. There's nothing for my grand, my mother or my granddad. They're just lost. There was, it's just, they just, that's it. Psh. Candle out. If only for this, next one, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Boy, you know for Paul that is some strong word. Paul is not a man who would want to be pitied. We would be pitied because we believed a lie. If only for this life. I, I know that when, when you come to, let's just make it us, okay? When you come to St. Andrew, this little corner in the body of Christ, there are a lot of wonderful things that go with it, right? Lots of friends, a lot of fellowship, lots of opportunities to grow and to learn and to share. I don't ever want to leave this community. I love you guys. Really, I do. But there are other places to meet people and there are other places to have fellowship. And there's other places to find friends. There's other places to share birthdays. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, which means bodily, hug him, resurrected, eat fish, resurrected, then we're to be pitied because we're living our life based on a lie. And at the end, when I take my last breath, that's just it. That's just it. And I go into the long list of those who li once lived and lived no more. That's how, that's how essential the resurrection of Jesus is to the Christian faith. It underlies everything. We are Easter people. We are not even, we are not even Good Friday people. We are Easter people. We Protestants emphasize this because we have, we generally use empty crosses. We are Easter people. The Christian faith hinges upon, rests upon the claim that Jesus was resurrected because if it's true, then wow. You know, people will ask me, well, okay, Scott, do you believe in X? Do you really believe God would do Y? Do you really believe God would do Z? And I, my response is always, well, if God resurrected Jesus, <laughs> well, sure, I mean, I certainly can believe in that because if you believe that God actually resurrected somebody, then there's a whole world of possibilities open to you. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, my understanding is certainly not the measure of what is true and untrue. So, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Dead in your sins, because what are the wages of sin? Death, Romans 6, which hasn't been written yet, by the way, when this letter is written. So, any thoughts or questions about that? Yes? It depends. 
Do Jews have a belief in the afterlife? Yes. And the nature of that belief depends upon whether they're orthodox, conservative, or reformed, okay, or ultra-orthodox. So it's hard to it's hard to generalize about. It's a little bit like you know, Christians, even in Christians, there are, are people who don't understand this very much. And are inclined to over-spiritualize everything and, and don't, have never even been taught that when they say the Apostles' Creed and they get to the end of the Apostles' Creed and they say they believe in the resurrection of the body, which we say every Sunday at 9.30 anyway, that they're talking about their own body. When I first started teaching this almost 20 years ago, I discovered that nobody, practically nobody understood that. Everybody thought they were talking about Jesus again, but no, they're talking about themselves because the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection are so completely bound that they're both in the creed. So, you know, Reformed Jews will have the, I don't know, what? The most spiritualized sense of an afterlife, I guess, and the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox will be more closer to the resurrection of the dead and a bodily resurrection. But again, you know, here's the funny thing. People ask me questions about what the Jews believe. I know a lot more about the Jews of Jesus' day than I do of the Jews of today. So that's always my caveat, you know. Go, go, go to a synagogue and ask a rabbi. Just make sure you know which kind of synagogue you're going to. Scott? Yes. I have a question. Yes. Um, when we'll be in Israel next week, uh -huh. On the Mount of Olives, there's this huge, on the side of the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem, there's this huge section of it that is filled with all of these white graves and, and um, uh, some of them even above ground. That's all white, 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 white. The whole hillside is white, 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 filled with these, these graves. And the reason they're all there is because for many Orthodox Jews, the Messiah, when he comes, will arrive there on the Mount of Olives, and they want to be the first raised at the big day. Now, sadly, we would tell them, well, you missed it, so let's just hope Jesus... <laughs> so, let, so I'm serious. So, let's so I would tell them, well, perhaps Jesus, when he returns the second time, that he will come to the Mount of Olives, because the truth is, when... Paul doesn't get into it as much here, but in Revelation, when you get to the resurrection, all people are resurrected, believers and non-believers. Everybody's resurrected. Not just the Jews or the Christians, but every person who ever lived and is living, li I guess the living don't have to be resurrected, but every person who has ever lived 
is resurrected and their names are read out in the books of merit and the books of and the book of life so but that's revelation paul see paul's purpose here in this section is is focused upon the resurrection of jesus and the implications of that if he wasn't resurrected and the fact that the resurrection of the dead which the corinthians are giving up is inextricably bound to the resurrection of Jesus. You can't separate the two. You can't say, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus was resurrected, but I don't think I'm going to be. Paul's head would go spinning and he would go, well, look, 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 go to 1 Corinthians 15 and read it. I brought it for just that problem. Anything else? Okay. But Christ has, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. In which case, he would probably have, if he had hyperlinks here, he would link back to verse 3 in chapter 15, where he has this little creedal affirmation of Jesus' resurrection and those who saw him and encountered Jesus. So verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died. Okay, first fruits. I'm really a city boy at heart, okay? Um, my friend Bob Kerr is my designated animal husbandry and agriculture expert. But even I know that when farmers farm, there are can be several harvests at least a couple the first fruits are the beginning of the harvest the first fruits taken off those apple tree the first apples removed from that apple tree jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the first fruits of that harvest of those who have died all the rest of us are part of that harvest, but Jesus is the first fruits. The rest of us will follow. Yes. He's already been resurrected. Yes. So he was. So his resurrection was the first. Okay, and then everybody. But it, so that's when the harvest began, and he was first. He was the first fruits in this agricultural metaphor. And the rest of us will all follow. We haven't yet. My mom's still in the ground, but we will follow. It's one event. That's the way to see it. What Paul is saying is it's one event. That's why you can't... That's why you can't deny... You can't say, well, I like this part of the harvest, but deny the reality of this part of the harvest. It's all one harvest. And I guess in agriculture, it takes time to harvest everything. And you might get two, two harvestings in the spring and summer in some crops. Jesus is the first, the rest of us will follow. He's just binding the two things together in as many ways as he can to help them understand that if they think they can deny the resurrection of the dead and embrace the resurrection of Jesus, they are wrong. 
They're bound together. It's one event, separated in time, sure. What is it like? What do we do with that, that separated in time? That what? That what's not happening? People aren't being resurrected right now? Yeah. Do you, have you met anybody who was dead in his back? No. No, well, so we could probably bet it hasn't happened. You know, yeah, I think, I think we kind of think it'll be pretty evident to everybody. I mean, there, there's no, that would be an interesting movie, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, what would happen? It'd be turned into a zombie movie is what would happen. So, um, The new heavens and the new earth will come. Jesus will come back. The resurrection is, the dead is all part of that, Lauren. Just go ahead and skip to verse 23. Okay, so let's just read on. Verse 20, let's start again at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's no place for death in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 27, for quote, he has put everything under his feet. So, let me see, do I, ha I do have slides. You see, it, this is how we end up with these kind of renderings of this, who are trying to, to draw this. So, so this is the old present age this is the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. This is the arrival of the kingdom in Jesus. And we are living in these last days until what happens? Jesus returns. The dead are raised. The new heavens, the new earth. And the, this old age is gone, leaving only the age of spirit and resurrection and and truth so that's one way this is so this way the other people other people do it. it's drawn differently okay and I brought but when Jesus here it is you see this is when Jesus returns the dead will be resurrected the new heavens and new earth and all that will be will be the age to come as the Jews spoke of it, the age of resurrection and spirit and life and and there will be no there's no death in this. Right? Now right? So the thing is the two overlap because even now today death does not hold us. Death is not our end. The death, death is not, when I die, it will not be like the putting out of a candle and me just passing into the darkness. There is a life after death. Paul says he's going to be with Christ. 
Jesus says to the guy next to him on the cross, you will be with me this day in paradise. But all of that still anticipates this, Jesus' return and the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection. Why, you, why do we need to have bodies? Well, so you can enjoy the new earth. How does Jesus, when, when Jesus is resurrected, just think about what he does. Go home and read Luke 24. In Luke 24, what does he do? He walks in the room. They think they've seen a ghost, naturally. Of course they would. I get that. But he's not a ghost. He says, I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and bone, quote. I'm flesh and bones. And then he proceeds to demonstrate his fleshy boneness by <laughs> saying, pass the, pass the fish. And he eats the fish in front of them so that they can see that, no, he's not some ghost or shade, as the Greeks would call it. He has been bodily resurrected, which is how we will be. And each in, each in its turn. Okay, it's all, it's, it's. Now, Under, look, look where the blue line starts, right? This is the, because we don't really say, well, someday this will all happen. Someday the blue will all be here. No, the blue, <laughs> the age to come arrived in Jesus. And this is why Paul will say very odd things. He will write, you have been crucified with Christ. You have been resurrected with Christ. Knowing full well there's a resurrection of the body that lies ahead and you and I are still alive. He says you've been, you've been crucified with Christ, you've been resurrected with Christ because you have come to new life by coming to Jesus. So God's victory over sin and death has been won. You know, there, the New Testament writers struggle to deal with this reality. Of course they do. But this is a simpler problem in Corinth. They're just, they've lost the belief in their own resurrection because they don't think they need it. They don't need bodies, they're better than bodies. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you give up your belief in the resurrection of the dead, you are necessarily giving up your belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And then, if he wasn't raised, you've all believed a lie. You're still dead in your sins. Your faith has been futile. So, any other thoughts or questions right now? Okay, back. Um, so, after... Let's go back to 23. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Right? Because all of those who oppose Christ, all the Caesars of this world, will be swept away. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that last enemy is what? Is who? Well, it's death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Revelation, death is thrown into the lake of fire. Interesting. 
image and metaphor. How death is thrown into the lake of fire, signifying its end. It's gone because there is no death in the new in, in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65, Revelation 21. There is no mourning, M-O-U-R-N, no mourning or grief or tears or crying. All of that's in the past. Okay. Verse 25, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he, quote, has put everything under his feet. That's a line from a psalm. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And you can't, if, what I see in some of these verses is Paul trying to work out the theology of Jesus, the Christology, the Trinity, the understanding of God, um, all of that. And here he is only 23 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then in 29 he says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? There's a Jewish practice of the baptism of the dead, which you get a little bit of in one of the books of the Apocrypha, but it's never been, um, it's never been a uh, Christian thing because it's, we, we all need to be baptized ourselves. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, ah, well then... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> From Isaiah. Ah, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. <laughs> it's from a Greek poet. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So he is pretty, he's very direct with him, isn't he? And why is he so direct? Is it just is it just because Paul is just some kind of hard guy who's just kind of all mean and doesn't want to just kind of hug everybody and just kind of get along? He knows that he is dealing with the utmost matters of life, salvation and the rest of it. So... Of course he's hard about it. Of course he's direct about it. You know, he, he's trying to... 
you know, we're to be pitied, he says. That's the line that always sticks with me. We're to be pitied if Jesus wasn't resurrected. So, you know, for me, I, I think that there's a battle to be fought even within the Christian church in terms of understanding what resurrection is and what the resurrection of the dead is and what the resurrection of the body is. You know, there was a uh, United Methodist Bishop Melvin Sprague who about 20 years ago said he didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I was asking, you know, even then I knew enough to ask, well, why are you still a Christian? <laughs> Come on. There was a, um, I'll close with this. In contrast, there was, there is an academic, a New Testament scholar from Germany named Gerd Ludemann. And Gerd Ludemann lost his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. He just did. It's a sad, it's sad, he did. And what he understood was that he stopped calling himself a Christian at that point. Because if Jesus wasn't raised, there's, there's nothing. It's integrally bound with the Christian faith. So, any last thing before I close this up with prayer? Anything from the streamers? We finally got them involved here. Thanks again for the birthday party and the rest of it. It was great. Super. I'm still in shock by the parade that came through here. <laughs> we are too. Yeah. <laughs> that was something. Okay. Well, we're go are we going to be here next week? No. We're going to be here in two weeks? No. No, we're going to be here in three weeks. We'll be in here on November 8th, which is what? Election day then, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, it'll be good to come and talk about Jesus on election day. <laughs> right? Okay. So... Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, we pray that you will hold us close, that your spirit will instill in us a deep confidence in the truth of Jesus' resurrection and, the, and a true confidence in our own that death will not hold us, that death is not our end, that we will all be resurrected to enjoy a creation, the new heavens and the new earth that has been put right so that we can be the people you always, always intended us to be. But even now, right now, today, in this life, help us to be those people in every way that we possibly can, to wake up every morning determined to be ever more Christ-like, kinder, more compassionate, more patient, people of faith in whom others see the light of Christ. And all this we pray in his name. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody.